this week's Memorial Day, Memorial Week, Adam Schefter podcast, we are joined by a former gunnery officer from the United States Navy, one Sal Palantonio, whose expertise goes beyond manning a ship in the sea. And we'll take your Ask Adam questions, some excellent questions this week. But first, we start with my friend, my colleague, the decorated veteran, Sal Palantonio. Uh, joining us now, long time, long time ESPN NFL reporter, the author of the Philly special, how the Philadelphia Eagles won their first Super Bowl championship. My friend, my colleague, the great Sal Palantonio. How's that for an intro, Sal? That was great. Thank you, Adam. You're the great one, Adam. You're the great one. I, I was doing a class recently uh, of uh, young broadcast students, and they asked me for the one person that I watch all the time and that I learn from still. And I said, number one, no question, Adam Schefter. <laughs> that's, that's very nice of you to say that. Why do you say, what, what do you learn from me, Sal? No one breaks news better than you. No one's on top of it more than you. You eat, drink, and sleep this job in a way that I've never seen anyone before. That's one. And two, it's not only important to gather information, but it's really important to know how to deliver it. And I think your presentation is always terrific. It's incisive. It's concise. It's to the point. You get, as I like to say, Adam, right to the news. (laughs) Well, Speaking of which, and I appreciate those kind words, and I thank you for them. There's nobody that knows how to deliver the news better than you. But it is Memorial Day as we tape this, Sal. And I guess my question to you would be, how does somebody go from graduating from the State University of New York at Oneonta in 1977 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in history, going on to NYU to get your master's degree in journalism, and then wind up serving as a gunnery officer in the U.S. Navy? Well, it's an actually an interesting story, and it's very family-related. My uncle, Antonio Palantonio, was uh, served in submarines in World War II in the North Sea. And his brother, Mario, also served in the Navy in World War II. And their youngest brother, Vito, was my dad. Hmm. And my dad had cataracts at birth and was 4F from the Korean War, never served. Hmm. He was the only one in his family who did not serve. My, my grandfather, Nick, served in both the Italian Army and the U.S. Army. And I remember very distinctly in 1968, my 12th birthday, my, my, my uncle Antonio was my godfather as well. He came to visit me, and I only cared about two things, the Beatles and baseball when I was 12. <laughs> And he looked me in the eye and he put pressure on me and he said, you have to go into the service because your dad didn't serve. So no matter when it happens, Mm. it's got to happen. And I made him that promise. And I kept that promise. And you served in the U.S. Navy from 79 to 83. And Uh, right. 78 to 83. uh, Five years. I was a surface warfare officer, had different jobs as a surface warfare officer on two ships in the Pacific and Indian Oceans. And mostly, you know, thank God, uh, I did not serve in any shooting war Uh, during the Cold War at the height of it after Carter left and Reagan took over at that point in 81. We were at the height of the Cold War. 
And uh, we basically chased Russian submarines all over the South Pacific and the Indian Oceans. And I spent a lot of time at sea. I did what's called a Westpac tour. Anybody who's listening to this and served knows what it is. Mm -hmm. And I did three of them. They were seven, eight, nine months at a time that I was away from my wife. We, we, were, uh, we, were, we were married very early on in life and uh, missed, missed, a lot of, missed a lot of time in, our, in the early part of our marriage. What is your greatest memory of serving as long as you did uh, at sea? Wow, so many great memories. You know, the camaraderie with my colleagues, um, Sean Gawilland, Bob Morabito, Jimmy Sicaro, uh, guys that I am still friends with over the years, John Wachter, um, Dan, Dan Bowler, guys who I served with, those, those friendships, you know, just like, just like in, in our job now, it's the friendships, the camaraderie, it's the teamwork. I, I loved being at sea with my, my friends and my colleagues and, and I, I enjoyed the work, but I think the greatest memory was when, when we were dispatched for the first time to the Indian Ocean from the South Pacific, and I was the lead officer in the deck for the 6th Fleet as we went through the Straits of Malacca at night. And uh, to drive a carrier group at, as the lead on the USS Olet, which was a frigate, a Knox-class frigate, to drive that ship as a lead of the carrier group through the Straits of Malacca at night is something that I will never forget. I'll tell you, it it gets you ready for standing at an NFL stadium with 70,000 people <laughs> screaming at your ear and focusing on what you have to say into the camera and try to do it well because that was an, that was something that I really had to focus on was 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 not running into anything or running aground in in a very difficult situation. Did you ever feel in danger while you did that while you were driving that ship? No, I personally didn't um you know, I had, I had great men around me, great equipment. I was well-trained. I was chosen for that job for a reason. Um, I was a pretty good ship driver, Adam. I, I, I don't mind saying I, I could drive a ship. I, I was pretty good at it. And, you know, you don't actually hold the helm, but you officer the deck. You decide where the ship is going to go. And, of course, the, the executive officer and the CEO were, were always within earshot of me. Yeah. So, But, um, no. Definitely not, but I, I obviously did not want anybody to be harmed while while I was performing this duty. So having served in the Navy, Sal, from 1978 to 1983, what does Memorial Day mean to you? You know, I, I take Memorial Day very seriously, you know, because uh, having studied history and studied military history, I understand the sacrifices of the men and women of the United States Armed Forces over the centuries in order for us to do the normal things that we want to do on Memorial Day, go to a picnic, enjoy a barbecue, go swimming, have ice cream with our grandchildren. Um, you know, and I understand what kinds of sacrifice was made and the level of bloodshed that took place. And I, and I think of, the other thing I think of, though, Adam, too, is I think of all the men and women who are serving abroad right now. I always just tell my daughters sometimes, close your eyes and think right now that there are men and women at sea on an aircraft carrier at night performing flight operations far from their families. Mm. And their families are home having dinner without them. Yep. And that, that to me is what Memorial Day means. Well, 
allow me to thank you and Chris Mortensen and every other person I know and every other person I don't know who has served for our country and given up their time and made sacrifices for their family as you did, as Mort did, as so many others have done. And we all owe you a tremendous debt of gratitude. So I would ask you, Sal, so then how do you go from doing what you did, driving that ship as well as you did, to driving those live shots as well <laughs> as you have for 24 years, for ES- over 24 years, right? Like, we are closing in on 25 years for ESP. Nobody's done it longer and at a higher level than you. Well, you know, longevity in this business is tough. And, um, you know, what I tell aspiring broadcasters or journalists is um, you got to have proper prior preparation to prevent poor performance. Mm-hmm. It's something I learned in the Navy. It's the six P's. Proper prior preparation prevents poor performance. And I still rehearse, and I still make sure that I know exactly what I'm talking about at all times, and I still try to bring it. I try to bring, you know, that whole Joe DiMaggio thing. You know, no matter what you're doing in your craft, try to do it to the best of your ability with with that extra pep in your step at all times because you never know if the person watching is watching for the first time. Did you ever imagine leaving the Navy that you would work the way you have for one company doing what you have for this long period of time? I've been super lucky. The answer to that is definitely no. Uh, Super lucky. I've had great people in my life at ESPN. Jim Cohen, who hired me. Hmm. Seth Markman, who is the godfather of all things NFL at ESPN, has been such a promoter of my career. Uh, When I wrote Philly Special, he was the first person at ESPN that I thanked me, acknowledgments. Stephanie Drooley, Norby Williamson. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of people that I've had close to me who have believed in me, people who came out of newspapers like Chuck Salaturo. Um, You know, guys... People who understood how to do the job and understood that I had something to contribute. And I always like to say again to my students, sometimes at ESPN, you get to play quarterback like I do on Sunday mornings at Lincoln Financial Field. But when I go to the Super Bowl, I'm I'm the right guard. And uh, that's the key to understanding the culture at ESPN. Sometimes you get to play quarterback, but you better be ready to play special teams when they ask you. Where do you teach students, Sal? Do you have a class that you teach? I teach all over the country, Adam. You know, I taught as an adjunct at St. Joe's for six years. Uh, I teach teach young broadcasters in something called the Scholastic Broadcast Camp every summer. That it's done. It's based out of Philly, but it's based. It, it has camps all over the country. And then I'm asked to to go and teach classes at different universities and colleges all the time. And Whenever I can, I try to talk to them uh, because it's tough now to, 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 to get a job, and it's really hard to keep them. You know, 25 years at Disney, you know what they give you for that, Sal? <laughs> Which is the statue for 25 years? I, I checked it out before I came on. Tinkerbell is 25 oh. years. You have a Tinkerbell statue coming, and I believe if my fact-checking is accurate that you get a Simba statue at 20. Do you have a Simba statue from 20? I have a, a, a Mustafa statue at 20, I believe. Yes, I have. Still, I gave that to my granddaughter, Kira. I wanted her to have it. 
She loves the Lion King, and she can't believe that I have that statue. Simba, Mustafa, that's a lot of statues. I don't have a single statue from Disney yet. <laughs> don't worry, Adam. You're going to own the company when you're done, <laughs> I don't have a single statue. So in your role as news gatherer, Sunday sideline reporter, who is the best interview that you've ever done? You know, wow. I I would have to say it's a it's a tie between three people. They're all in the NFL. I say Ray Lewis because you know I covered his trial and then I covered his Super Bowl runs. Wow. And I could I could listen to Ray Lewis talk. Uh, you know, recite the Manhattan phone book. <laughs> Bill Parcells uh, is that way. Yep, Bill Parcells yes, is that way. Yes, Bill Parcells is that way for sure. Tom Brady. Uh, would have to be right up there. I've covered all of his Super Bowl runs, most of his playoff games, and Brady is always detailed and interesting and sincere. And then I'm going to say Eli Manning. You know why? Because he's accessible, and he never shies away from a question. And um, I just like dealing with Eli, and I like Eli, I like to let Eli tell his story. He's got an interesting story, in my opinion. So we got Ray Lewis, we got Tom Brady, we have Eli Manning. You bring up Tom Brady. How much interaction one-on-one have you had with him? Well, quite a bit. I mean, on the field and in post-game, I've had quite a bit of interaction with him. And obviously at the Super Bowls, uh, this last Super Bowl, uh, after one of the media availabilities at the middle of the week, I just went up to him as he came off the podium yeah. and stopped him before he left and uh, talked to him one-on-one, and we put it on SportsCenter. And I remember Seth Markman sending me a text. He said, you got Brady? And I'm like, yeah, I got Brady. Yeah. And then after the Super Bowl, as you know, it's it's an absolute madhouse rush to get players. And they don't just give them to you. You're not the broadcasting network. And you have to fight. And uh, Tom was kind enough to stop and talk to me after that lie and we did it and we taped three or four questions and it ran on all the sports centers that night so you know i've had enough interaction with them and you know i've another thing that i try to teach my students is the importance of writing handwritten thank you notes to everybody that you interview and brady has always mentioned to me hey i got your note thanks and i know you do the same thing adam uh, in fact, I get I get thank you notes back from Bill Belichick all the time. I send Bill a thank you note all the time because he always invites me on the field uh, at training camp, and we chat a little bit about our grandchildren and about football, and, and I always send him a note, and he writes me back. Listen, you know, back to Tom Brady, I don't get to get out of the office very often. My world exists between basically my house in New York where I do live shots or Bristol, Connecticut, and I get to go to one game a year unlike you. So I have so little interaction up close and personal with these guys the way you do every single week, and you get to miss out on that. I miss out on that. But I will say this. My two favorite guys, Larry Fitzgerald as people and Tom Brady, two pros, two gentlemen, such nice people, nicer than people realize. Very nice guy, Tom Brady. And But don't be fooled. Ferocious underneath. (laughs) Killer. Ferocious underneath. Wants to kill the competition. No question about it. But, you know, he turned me on to a book that I have at my bedstand called The Four Agreements. And I've I've, I've bought probably 20 copies and given them to everybody that, you know, I talked about. 
my, my children have it. My wife has it. The four agreements. And it's his favorite book. And I try to live by those four agreements. What are, what, and, what, what, uh, I, I don't know this book, so fill me in on what I'm missing here, Sal. Oh, it's a, it's a fabulous little book of personal philosophy. And uh, the, the four agreements are be impeccable with your word. Um, don't let outside forces uh, influence you. Um, uh, be true to yourself. And, and the last one is, um, is escaping me off the top of my head, but the bottom line is um, it's not how you act. It's how you react that separates the haves from the have-nots. And the book is that good, huh? You love it. I reread it all the time. Well, I got to get that. It's this a great, it's a great. It's a great book of mindfulness in life. Well, I'm, I'm going to get that book. I'm surprised when you were listing people that you didn't mention Bart Scott and this great interview, Sal. To all the non-believers. How did that? To all the non-believers. Especially you, Tom Jackson. Way to have our back, Keyshawn. Anybody can be beat. So how did that just feel? Feel great. Poetic justice. We know we were a much better team than we came up and represented ourselves. And we were, we were pissed off. We was ready to come back and show what kind of defense, what type of team this was, what kind of character we had. We take a lot of slack. People gave us no chance. Like, we barely made it in playoffs. We're a good football team. It looks like this team played with anger all day. Why, Bart? For all you non-believers, disrespect us. Talk crap about the defense like we ain't the third best defense in the league. All we hear is about their defense. They can't stop a nosebleed. 25th in the league, and we don't want to get disrespected. Congratulations. See you in Pittsburgh. Can't wait. See, Sal, that was January 2011. And I remember watching that interview, and it was one of the great post-game interviews with a player on the field that I've ever seen. And what was so great about that, to me, not only was his reaction... Talk about Tom Brady and the reaction, not the action. But it was your deadpan delivery. You maintained a straight face all along. I never would have been able to do that. I would have been swept up in the emotion of the moment. I would have been laughing at what he said. And you just sat there looking at him in all seriousness. What do you remember about that day? Well, I remember everything about that day. I use that interview uh, in my my classes all of the time. I said 23 total words in that interview. Hmm. Um, And, you know, I knew right away it was going to be great. (laughs) And I didn't want to get in the way of it. I didn't want to color it in any way, shape, or form. And I thought it was really important to just listen to what he was saying and react to it. My use of the word of anger there. And just a clean, open-ended question, why, allowed him to let his emotions pour forth. And I, I, I could have asked him about the essence of the game, a talking point about an XO point or whatever, but I realized right away that I had it and there was nothing more for me to say, and I threw it back. Back to you. The back to you part still makes Hannah Storm laugh. <laughs> It was an outstanding post-game interview, and you did a great job of just getting out of his way. And to watch it, you know, listening to it is one thing. To watch it is another thing because he's so expressive and he's so angry. And you, like I said, you just sat there and you just listened to the whole thing without reacting at all, Sal. That was a great job. You know, when I first got to ESPN, Adam, John Walsh told me 
go for the stars, play the hits. And that's what I try to do in these post-game interviews is bring the big stars to our audience. And I always look for, on defense, linebackers. On offense, quarterbacks, obviously. But linebackers have so much adrenaline coursing through their veins. That's why I mentioned Ray Lewis, and that's why that interview with Bart Scott. A linebacker has so much adrenaline. It's so pumped up after a win like that. And make sure you get them on the field before they cool down in the locker room and let the emotions just hang out and get out of the way and stay out of the a way. Linebacker more so, a linebacker more so than a defensive lineman or a defensive back? They don't have emotion to? Yeah, the linebacker is usually the one calling the signals, knows what happened. And, you know, obviously you want to pick a guy who's been running around. has been You know, Bart Scott played every single snap in that game. Yeah. And so, uh, and and it was just too easy. It was easy for me to stay out of the way and let him do his thing. It's one of the most watched post-game interviews on YouTube in ESPN history. It was made into not one but two rap songs, and the phrase "can't wait" was trademarked by Bart Scott. Could you imagine if the if the Jets had beaten the Steelers in the AFC Championship game? Ah, and gone to the Super Bowl. The T-shirts we would have sold, Adam Schefter. The oh. T-shirts we would have sold. And you did not get any percentage of that patent. Can't wait, did you? No, of course not. You know, As a reporter, and that's there's why, no way. There's no way. There's no way I could do that. No, no, I know. But that's why I'm surprised that when you were listing the athletes that you've interviewed that stood out to you most, you, li- you listed Ray Lewis, Tom Brady, and Eli Manning, and no mention of Bart Scott there. Well, the Bart Scott interview was super famous and super great, but it was a shooting star. It was Haley's Comet. Hmm. And, um, you know, these these other gentlemen and many others, I have to interview all the time. And to go back and back and back and back over and over and over again, they never disappoint. It was great. You mentioned four agreements, the book that Tom Brady recommends that you have by your bedside that you've given out to 30 or so people. You've also written, as you mentioned, the Outset of this podcast, Philly Special, how the Philadelphia Eagles won their first Super Bowl championship. What stood out to you most about that book, Sal? Well, what I learned about that team after having covered the team throughout the entire run was fascinating to me. You know, the way that Doug Peterson was able to adapt The fact that the team was resilient despite the injuries to their starting left tackle, starting middle linebacker, starting quarterback. Um, The level of brotherhood and literally, you know, I I hate to throw this word around, Adam, because you hear it all the time Mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean really that much. But in this case, I'm using the word very specifically. This team had love. Mm -hmm. They really loved each other. And during the Nick Foles part of it, after Carson Wentz went down, Foles really was able to bring the team together, I think, through a, a bond of brotherhood and love like mm. I have never seen before. And it was very interesting to me the way the team rallied around Foles and how Foles gave back to them with you know such a meaningful relationship that carried over into the season after they won the Super Bowl last season. And I know that a lot of people in that organization were really sorry to see him go. How is he going to do in Jacksonville? Well, 
He didn't have a great supporting cast around him in Philly. It was good, but not great. Again, missing left tackle, uh, you know, kind of different parts to the to the running back position. He didn't have really a true great wide receiver. The key to Nick Foles is that he gets the ball out quickly. He's in Tom Brady's neighborhood, 2.5 seconds or less. That's going to make Jacksonville's offensive line better instantaneously. It's snap, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, release the football. And if he does that with John Filippo and the run-pass option, they'll be a lot better. The problem is, right, Adam, that since Jacksonville went to Foxborough yep. for that AFC championship game against the Patriots, the AFC South has improved dramatically. Oh, yeah. Grable has improved the Titans. I think Frank Reich has the Colts on the doorstep of the AFC Championship game right now. Agreed. And uh, and, uh, so Jacksonville, and then, of course, Houston, because they have two of the best players in the league in Watson and uh, J.J. Watt. I mean, they're always going to be good. So Jacksonville's got their work cut out for them. You brought up Doug Peterson, and a couple of weeks ago you were spotted on a weekend sports center riding bikes with Doug Peterson. And I can't tell you how many times we've heard a live shot from a stadium site where you said, I texted Doug Peterson this morning, and this is what he told his team. Does Doug Peterson ever get tired of hearing from you, Sal? I have never asked him that question. All I know is he still responds to my text. Always, and right? He, and, and if he didn't respond to my text. I would say something to him because we both belong to Laurel Creek Country Club. We both go to the same Starbucks. We both go to the same Chinese restaurant in Morristown, New Jersey. Our wives know each other. We both uh, work for Urban Promise Ministries Charity. So if he didn't respond to my text, I would say something to him. (laughs) You would not be buying a Starbucks online. You'd be sabotaging. You'd be charging drinks to his account at the country club. You could be doing a lot of things to him that would make his life miserable, correct? I I do know his account number, correct. And how are the Eagles going to fare this year, Sal? Nobody's got a better pulse on that team than you. How are they going to do? You know, it really doesn't take an expert to figure it out. It's all about whether number 11 can stay on the field. Dating back to his final collegiate season, Carson Wentz has missed 31% of his possible starts, 21 of 68. The cracked bone in the back last year, the knee injury the year before, a broken wrist in college where he missed eight games, went 12 weeks without playing in college in his senior year. He's missed 31% of his possible starts, Adam, Hmm. and um, that's a big number. And so it's all about Carson Wentz being available to this football team because Nick Foles ain't walking through that door anymore. <laughs> Nate, Sud- Nate Sudfeld is your backup quarterback. So it's a precipitous drop if Carson Wentz is not on the field. Do you expect him to be healthy from the time that you spent at the club and the Starbucks and everywhere else with Doug Peterson? I do expect him to be healthy at the start of the season, yes. Okay. Now, notice how I answered that question. At the start of the season, you didn't say training camp. I, I, do, I do believe he'll be ready at the start of the season. When the season starts, he will be ready to go. You're telling me something there, aren't you, Sal, without saying it? No, I think, I think he will participate in training camp. I think he will participate in training camp. I don't know how much they're going to play him in the preseason. That's an awful risky thing. 
he didn't play in the preseason. I don't remember in his rookie year and had a very good rookie season because but, but, he had he had that uh, he had that uh, wrist injury. But don't you think if they're holding him out of the first couple of games and there's really no great reason to play him, but wouldn't that send off some sort of signal that he's not fully recovered from that injury at that point, Tom? If he doesn't play in the early part of the preseason, well, as you know, this is a delicate dance, right? You have reported, and I think accurately, that talks are ongoing between the team and Carson Wentz's representatives about a long-term deal. And everybody involved wants to get it done. What shape it will take, I'll wait for you to break that news. I don't know what shape it will take. There'll be protections for everybody all along the way. But the bottom line is, they, everybody wants him to make it to week one fully whole and fully healthy so he's taking snaps when when uh when when the washington redskins come in week one and you know they bring in their rookie quarterback and he's starting over case keenum uh, i think it's going to be twain haskins versus carson wentz week one at lincoln financial field adam get your popcorn ready brother it should be it should be great now before i let you go sal at the outset of this interview you said that your life when you were younger was nothing but the Beatles and baseball. Who was your favorite Beatle, and what is your favorite baseball moment? Oh, that's a great one. So, obviously, my favorite Beatle is John Lennon. Hmm. Um, I do admire everything that he did as a musician. I still listen to them. Uh, my favorite Beatles song is one he wrote. It's the second song on the first side of the White Album, Dear Prudence, about Mia Farrow's sister, Prudence, when they were in India together. Uh, I, I just think, um, you know, he just had this great texture of rock and roll music that last, will last for the next 500 years. Um, my greatest baseball moment, without a doubt, was Father's Day. I can't remember the year where Jim Bunning threw a perfect game against the Mets at Shea Stadium. And I was with my dad. At the game. I was at the game with my father. Yes, we were sitting wow. five or five or six rows behind the visiting dugout at Shea Stadium. Is your father still alive today? My father Vito passed away three years ago, and he was a great Joe DiMaggio fan. He used to say, "If your number four hitter only has three hundred and fifty-six strikeouts, you're going to win a lot of pennants." <laughs> Well, that Jim Bunning game was 1964, and I'll tell you something, Sal. Every single baseball game that I go to, and I don't go to very many these days, but every single baseball game that I ever go to and every single baseball game I ever went to, I've always wanted more than anything to see a no-hitter in person. And every That was time, the first game I went to. Oh, my God. That's incredible. I was eight years old. I was eight years old. And I can't wait to take my oldest granddaughter, Kira, who's five, to a Phillies game when she comes down to Philadelphia and visits me next month. That's yeah, what I want for my birth. That's what I want for my birthday. <laughs> she and she's never been to a Phillies game before. No, she hasn't. She lives in Albany, New York, and she hasn't been to a professional game. And I FaceTimed her when I was at a Phillies game a couple of like last week, I think it was. I FaceTimed her <laughs> and I showed her the cotton candy that was for sale, and she's like, "I want to go to a game." <laughs> That's how I get my daughter to go to a baseball game. It's all about hot dogs and ice cream and all the things that she can get and eat while we're at the baseball game. They love that, Sal. Yes. That's the best way. Well, Sal, thank you very much for your service to the country, 
Thank you very much for your time today on the podcast. Congratulations on your pending Tinkerbell statue and lots of luck with the upcoming Philadelphia Eagles and NFL season. Thank you so much, Adam. We'll be back in a moment with your Ask Adam questions, but first a word from Shell. They say a great offense starts with a great defense, and that's especially true when it comes to the fuel you put in your car. Shell V-Power Nitro plus premium gasoline is engineered with four levels of defense against gunk, wear, corrosion, and friction to help keep your engine running like new. And now, you and your car have even more reasons to celebrate with the Shell Great Gas Giveaway. It's your chance to win free fuel for a year or one of thousands of prizes with a total prize value of over a million dollars. If you're a Fuel Rewards member, you'll automatically receive one entry every time you fill up with eight gallons or more. And if you choose new Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline, you'll get four entries. Not a member? Download the Fuel Rewards app or go to fuelrewards.com slash win to join. In engines that continuously use Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline, no purchase necessary. Promotion ends 9-1-19. See official rules at fuelrewards.com slash win for how to enter by mail and all details. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. We should ask Adam. And it's a Memorial Day, Memorial Week edition of Ask Adam. Thank you, the listeners, for calling in your questions. We love getting them. And I thank my fine producer and friend, Josh Macri, for picking off those questions, rounding them up, and then delivering them on air. Josh, you got the questions ready this week? I do, Adam. It's been far too long since we've taken calls, and uh, we got some good ones this week. An interesting one, not team-specific, mm-hmm. but rather rule-specific. Interested to get your thoughts on this. Hey, what's up? This is Mitch. Uh, my question is, how do you guys feel about the new pass interference rule in the NFL, and how do you think it's going to play out? Thanks. Well, Mitch, what I would say to you is that, to me, coaches have three challenges. And I've always felt, and I know the competition committee disagrees, but I've always felt that the coach should be allowed to use his challenges however he wants. If you are given $50 in allowance... Your parents don't tell you how to spend it. They can recommend it, but they're not going to tell you how to spend it. You're going to spend your allowance, Mitch, the way you want. And these coaches get three timeouts or three challenges to challenge whatever they want. That's how it should be to me. And, again, this year they'll be allowed to challenge PI. I think they should be allowed to challenge PI. We saw how significant not being able to challenge PI was in the NFC Championship game last year. And, again, I know that the competition committee is worried about the pace of the game. But they only have three challenges. Once they're out, they're out. That's it. Good point. Good point. All right, enough with the rules. Let's get to the teams. You got it, Josh. First, we'll go to the NFC South. Hey, Derek from Nebraska here. Looking to see what your guys' thoughts are on the Falcons. You know, they make the Super Bowl, what, three years ago? Kind of have a down year after that. A lot of injuries last year. Drafted short up the offensive line. Matt Ryan got sacked, I think, 48 times last year. Just looking to see, you know, what's their division odds, what do you guys think about that, playoff chances, Super Bowl chances, etc. Thanks so much. Love the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much for listening. Appreciate that. And I would say that the Falcons, I actually really like what they did during the offseason. You look at what this team spent on its offensive line. I mean, it is big, big money, big, big draft capital in terms of the offensive line. And there might not be a team in the league with the offensive line depth 
that the Falcons have. They went and spent big money on Jamon Brown as a free agent. Then they go and use two, two first-round draft picks on Chris Lindstrom and Caleb McGarry. I think McGarry right now is slated to play right tackle. Lindstrom slated to play right guard. You match him with Alex Mack and James Carpenter and Jake Matthews, and the Falcons become the first team in the modern era to trot out five offensive linemen who all went in the first round of the draft. So if you have an offensive line that's that talented, uh, there's no reason that you shouldn't be a very good team. Obviously, uh, they've made a change at the offensive coordinator spot. I think that'll be a big deal to this team. But Matt Ryan, you know he's always going to be good. They have a potent offense. It's going to be a big year for Devonta Freeman without Tevin Coleman there. I, I like this team. The problem is, is that in the South, you know New Orleans is going to be very good. Carolina's always tough. And I think Tampa will be better this year. So, again, it's one of those tough divisions that Atlanta is going to have to find a way to navigate through. All right, Adam, here we are, last week of May. Doesn't it seem like the Browns are America's sweetheart? Would you oh, say yeah. that's accurate? Oh, yeah. No question about it, Josh. Well, our next caller wants to know if there are any holes that can be poked in that Cleveland Browns exterior. Hi, my name is Ali. Uh, I live in the greater Cleveland area, surrounded by Browns type. I was wondering um, what personnel uh, weaknesses do you see on the current roster going into next year? Thanks. Well, yeah, I appreciate the question. I would just say that this, that that when you look at the Browns roster on paper, amazingly enough, there, there really aren't that many weaknesses. I guess you could say the offensive line perhaps uh, might not be as strong as you'd like. They are starting Greg Robinson, a left tackle. They've kind of remade his career, salvaged it, and we don't know how good he's going to be. And Chris Hubbard at right tackle, seems like he'll be good, but you don't know how good he is or isn't. So if we're going to look at the two tackle spots, that would be an area that I would raise some questions about. Everywhere else, they they are solid, right? Like backfield, so deep. Wide receivers, so deep. Defensive line, so deep. Linebackers, strong. Secondary, very strong. Like, they're really good. My, my question with the Browns is more along the lines of not personnel, but just team fit, team chemistry. Remember when the Eagles assembled what we called that dream team that summer, Josh? Remember that? Oh, I do. They brought in Namdi Asamoah. They had Vince Young. Yeah, it looked like they were loaded. And everyone that year was all gung-ho on Philadelphia the way they are gung-ho on the Browns now. It just didn't work together. And just because you've got great pieces doesn't mean the guys fit. Now, these Browns may fit together. And you've got some big personalities with a head coach who's a rookie head coach in Freddie Kitchens. I know he took over last year, but this is a different kind of deal. First time, interim title removed. And so there are a lot of things there that they're going to have to figure out a way to overcome. These guys are going to have to come together, blend together. Baker's going to have to learn what it's like to play with Odell Beckham Jr. and Kareem Hunt and all this new talent in Cleveland. They're going to have to learn playing for a new defensive coordinator and Steve Wilkes. So th- there's a lot of changes a lot of personalities, a lot of fitting that has to be done. And and I don't doubt it can't be done. And I'm as high on the Browns as anybody else. But if you're going to ask the questions about that team, I'd say the tackle position on offense and how everybody fits together. All right, let's stay in the AFC North as we close it out here, Adam, with another team that is looking to rebuild some chemistry. Hey, this is Jack. I was just calling because I'm wondering about the situation in Pittsburgh. I know that Le'Veon Bell's gone, and everyone thinks James Conner's going to take over the show, and that's just kind of how Mike Tomlin's run his offense. But I've heard some 
things, but then taking uh, Snell in the fourth and that Jalen Samuels performed well and his running back coach in college is now the running back coach for the Steelers. Do you think they'll go by more of a committee approach or do you think they'll still follow their normal routine of having one workhorse back in James Conner? I, I think that the talent will dictate that. How much Benny Snell picks up the offense in training camp will help influence that. Uh, Jalen Samuels has got talent. And yes, he's familiar with the staff. And, and I, I think James Conner is the guy. I think he's just the lead back. Now, that doesn't mean that Jalen Samuels isn't going to start cutting into that workload or that Benny Snell Jr. isn't going to also cut into that workload. But I think you go into training camp with Connor is the one, Samuels is the two, and Benny Snell Jr. as the three. And we'll see how those backs wind up this summer. We know that Connor can do it. We don't know that Jalen Samuels can do it. We don't know that Benny Snell can do it. We think they can, but they have to prove they can. And that's what training camp will be for. Prove it season, Adam. Absolutely. And you can prove that you'd like to Get involved in the show by leaving us a voicemail. Make sure you leave your name, too, so you can get proper credit. 860-506-5779 for your Ask Adam questions. Thank you for some excellent Ask Adam questions, and thank you to all you listeners for tuning in to another edition of the Adam Schefter Podcast. Please join us again next week for the latest edition, and until then, have a great Memorial Week, everybody.